Good morning. We're starting a new series today in the book of James called Spiritual Living. And our text is on page 1011 in your pew Bible. I think the series is kind of playfully named because you could easily sum up the letter of James by calling it practical living. But the truth is that all the practical commands that James gives us are are really impossible unless we're spiritually alive. By way of introducing this book, it's good for us to consider who is James? Who's this person that's writing this letter? Most likely he's not one of the two Jameses that Jesus counted among his twelve disciples. Rather, we believe that this is Jesus' half-brother, James, who is writing. Why half-brother? Well, it's because James was born of Mary and Joseph, unlike Jesus who was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of Mary who was still a virgin at the time, as we just celebrated a few weeks ago. The Bible indicates that Jesus' siblings, the children, the other kids in the family, did not believe in him during his ministry. They thought he was out of his mind. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, his brother James became a leader in the Christian church at Jerusalem, which was the early center of Christianity. And the Apostle Paul speaks of meeting James, the Lord's brother, at Jerusalem. James was a prominent leader there, even presiding over a church council to resolve the momentous dispute that's recorded in Acts 15. And if you read Acts 15 and this letter of James, you may even notice that some of the same phrases are used. So we can safely say that James is Jesus' brother. But what about his audience? Who were the people who would have originally heard this letter? You see in verse 1, James addresses his letter to the twelve tribes in the, the twelve tribes in the dispersion. He's writing to Jewish Christians. Jewish people were scattered throughout the world after many historical events, including the persecution of Christians that's described in the book of Acts. In fact, James may have been writing specifically because of persecution, because of the way he starts this letter. Instead of the typical word of praise and thanksgiving to God that is found in much of Peter's and Paul's letters, James launches right into exhortation about meeting trials. So let's read these verses together. James chapter 1 Verses 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray and ask for God's help understanding his word this morning. Father, we need you in this time. We need you always, but especially now to understand these inspired words. Please impress on our hearts what you would have us learn this morning. Give us grace and give us conviction. Give us resolve to obey in the power of your spirit. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was once a man named Job, whom the Bible calls the greatest of all the people of the East. He was blessed with a large family, seven sons, three daughters. 
And as far as material possessions go, he was quite wealthy at the time. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, as well as many servants. And we're told in the book of Job that one day four messengers arrived, one right after the other, with terrible news. All of Job's possessions had been raided or consumed by fire, and his servants were also killed. But the final servant brought the worst word of all, and that was that Job's children were all gathered at the house of the oldest brother when suddenly a great wind came and brought the house down, and all of his children perished. On top of this, Job was then stricken with sickness in the form of sores all over his body. And yet he continued to fear God. And his wife scoffed at him. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job rebuked her. He said, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? As you hear that story, ask yourself, What are my expectations of God? Don't we sometimes identify with Job's wife? You know, if my life as a Christian isn't any better off than the people around me who don't follow Christ, then what's the point? When we're experiencing good times, we often harbor an unspoken assumption that life will continue to be good and easy, as if that's the default situation for us as Christians. And there are preachers today who spread that lie. And when life is troublesome and tragic, we become full of self-pity and doubt and maybe even anger toward God. Our responses reveal our expectations. Our responses reveal our sense of entitlement. In the next few minutes, we're going to see that when we meet trials, we're to rejoice in them because they build us up. We are to rejoice in trials because they ultimately build us up. I have three sections for you based on verses 2, 3, and 4. Verse 2, regard. Verse 3, remember. And finally, verse 4, result. Regard, remember, result. So, regard. Regard it as joy when you meet all kinds of trials. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So, Notice a few things here. First, he doesn't say if you meet trials. They're guaranteed. They're unavoidable. Inescapable. Various kinds. Well, he's left that category wide open. You'll face all kinds of trials in your life. There are internal trials like temptation. That's coming up later in this chapter. There are external trials brought upon us. There are individual trials, family trials, corporate trials, trials we face as the people of God altogether. There's oppression, mockery, material loss, sickness, slander, death of loved ones. We face many trials on many different scales. I don't want to make light of any of them this morning. I stand here as one, maybe I've seen just a peak of life's tragedy, but I know there are brothers and sisters here that have been through very deep, very dark waters. You've walked through the valley of the shadow of death. We were out to dinner with friends a couple weeks ago, and I confess that I'm not 
prepared to lose a close family member. I know it's going to happen. Four sisters, two parents, in-laws, niece, and nephews. I can't imagine any of them gone. But I know we live in a world of tragedy. Many of you know that kind of pain. Many of you are grieving this morning. I said before that because of James's intended recipients, he probably has trials of persecution in mind. If you live as a Christian in this world, you will face hardship because of your faith, because of your convictions. If the world hated Jesus, it's going to hate his followers. Jesus told his disciples that. So we face all kinds of trials. How does the world tell us to regard it when we meet trials? We're not encouraged to count it joy. On the contrary, when we meet mockery, regard it as an offense. When we meet material loss, count it all misfortune. When we meet slander, double down and count it self-righteousness. When we meet sickness, count it depression. Count it aggravation, count it sadness. Definitely not joy. Counting it all joy is not a natural response to trials. But it can be genuine. This passage this morning, it's not teaching us to encounter life as stoics. It's not encouraging us to meet hardship with a shrug of the shoulders like, oh well, these things happen. It's not telling us to become detached either. So how is it possible? Well, James explains that it's based on what we know. We've seen how we're to regard trials. Now let's consider what we should remember, what we need to keep in mind. We are to count it all joy because we know that we gain endurance when our faith is tested. Verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Our faith becomes steadfast not when life is going according to plan, but when it's tested, when something comes along to shake it and cause us, force us to respond with more faith. A big part of our growth as Christians is learning what we ought to know from Scripture and then living through the process of having our emotions catch up. We're not going to hear this verse one time and suddenly count it all joy when we meet trials. It takes growing. It takes purposely calling things to mind before our thoughts and emotions will line up with the truth. It's a little like me and sugar. There's all this research coming out that I've been reading that we've had fat and sugar all wrong and carbs are way worse for your health than sugar uh, than fat. And I'm trying to remember that when there's a sale on Ben and Jerry's. But, and it's not going too well. But I'm slowly learning to regard carbs differently. We learn to bring our responses into alignment with the truth of what we know. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's the truth that you have to keep in mind. And if that's true, then the meaning of trials is something that we can rejoice about. Trials are guaranteed to us to build up our endurance and faith. I want to pause here and say that we are not supposed to delude ourselves. You can be genuinely sad about the trials you're facing 
while rejoicing to face them. The Apostle Paul talks about that paradox. says that we're sorrowful yet always rejoicing. These are truths in the life of a Christian. Holding these two things together. Tragedy is still tragic. Persecution is still unjust. But we're to see beyond our momentary trials to something higher and something greater. To the ultimate result. And the ultimate result of this steadfastness is our perfection. Verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God's purpose in our trials is to make us whole. We will never attain perfection or completion in this life, but we're on the move toward that end. Now stop and consider the contrast here. Trials always involve loss. Loss of reputation, possessions, status, friends, family. Yet James says that the steadfastness we get from our faiths being tested results in our being perfected and lacking in nothing. So trials build us up by tearing down what is not necessary. The things we lose in trials are not worth as much as what we gain, which is the completion of our character. That's what being perfect and complete means. We become more righteous. We come to know God better. That's the testimony of those who go through trials with God. While they rely on God, they come to know Him more. Think of what Jesus said. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those are difficult words. But don't stumble over them. Because he also says, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. It's about weighing what you lose against what you will gain. If you're one of God's children through faith in Christ, you can only lose the things that aren't necessary. We have good examples throughout Scripture of people who compare their trials to the end goal, to the outcome, and who are then able to endure and even to rejoice. In the book of Acts, chapter 5, Jesus' apostles get thrown into prison. And then they're rescued by an angel. And then they're recaptured and beaten and finally released once again. And we're told that as they went away from that experience, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Paul wrote that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's all about comparing what we lose to what we stand to gain. Listen to Paul again. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. For the person who truly follows Christ, Jesus is the goal. Not pleasure in this life, not comfort, not a respectable family. We follow Jesus himself in order to gain Jesus himself. And we have Jesus himself as our greatest example of enduring trials. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him, he endured. Part of the joy that was set before Jesus was the redemption of us, his people. Why was this necessary? Well, it's because our natural state is opposition to God. Without Jesus coming to save us, we'd be lost in our sin, in our disobedience to God, lacking everything. We'd have no character. We'd, we, we, would, we would be alone in our trials, definitely not able to count it joy. You see, Jesus is the only man who fits James's description. He's the only man who's ever lived who is perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And believing in him means that we make the exchange of that perfection that he has for our sin. That's why he died, to take the death that we deserve for our unrighteousness. And his sacrifice was acceptable to God. God raised him from the dead. Those who believe in him get his righteousness counted as if it were theirs. They receive the Holy Spirit of God to transform them into truly righteous people. That transformation is what allows us to count it all joy. That transformation is what makes us lack in nothing concerning righteousness. Believe that. Believe that this morning. Believe it every day. Our trials lead to steadfastness and the full effect is the perfection and the completion of our character. How does this work out in our lives? Let's think about a few few examples. First, we can let go in our trials as we face them. We can let go of needing to know why. Why is this happening to me? When Job was first bereaved and stricken with sores, we're told that he did not sin with his lips. But by the end of the book, after he starts to assert his own righteousness, and the injustice of his situation, God rebukes him. You read it for yourself, you'll see that essentially God answers Job's assertions by simply asserting that he's God and Job is not. Job was once again blessed by God after all the evil things that happened to him, but he was never told of any reason for his suffering. If you read the book, you read the first chapters, you get to know the behind the scenes stuff conversations between God and Satan. But as far as we know, Job was never told about that. God does not answer to us, his children, but he loves us. He works in our lives to make us complete. So count it all joy and let steadfastness have its full effect. Don't torment yourself trying to figure out the mind of God in your suffering. Second, Don't meet your trials with disobedience to God. Remember, rather than encouraging you to count it all joy, the world wants you to count it all misfortune, offensive, self-righteousness, count it all pity, count it envy or sadness. How many posts have you seen on social media where a person vaguely describes being wronged by somebody that they thought they knew and then they resolve, that's it. I'm done putting others first. It's time to take care of me me alone. And other people are like, that's right. Preach. That is meeting mistreatment. That's meeting the trial of mistreatment with a promise to be selfish. 
That's what that is. That's foolish and self-righteous. What about cursing your circumstances? I'm hoping to be free of this one myself. Bad things happen. It doesn't matter what you say, whether damn or darn. It's, it's the condition of our hearts when we meet these things. We are profaning the name of God if we're cursing the life circumstances that He's given us. You can mourn the small inconveniences. You can mourn the great tragedies without cursing God's wisdom in ordering your life. One of the responses to hardship that I'll never forget as long as I live uh, happened at the home of someone I knew in college. Her mother was on the phone talking to someone. I think talking about trouble with a ministry organization that their family had started. And she was crying and saying, it's Satan, this is Satan. And as I think about it years later, it was irreverent to say that. It was bordering on blasphemy. Because even if it was Satan himself behind the circumstances, it's still part of God's providence, part of his design. Again, in the book of Job, the scripture attributes all of Job's suffering, all of his ills to Satan, while at the end saying that it was God who brought disaster upon him. Even our hardship is ordered by God. Nothing happens that God doesn't bring to us for our good. It's all for our good. So what are your expectations of God this morning? Your guaranteed trials of various kinds. Count it joy when you meet them because in them, God is conforming you to the perfect image of Jesus who suffered far more than you ever will. God through our trials is making us perfect, making us suitable for His presence for all eternity. And that is worth more than anything we could possibly lose. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word for its conviction, for its encouragement, for its example. Help us look to our example, the example of Christ, that we would be able to endure small things and very, very hard things in our lives. Please make us more like your Son, even this day. In Jesus' name, amen.